So tonight I thought it might be helpful <coughs> to reflect on the interplay between faith and doubt in this practical way that it does often show up on retreat. There are moments I'm sure some of you have experienced, maybe even right now, where there's a lot of faith energy, a lot of that strong can be at times very strong energy. The whole mind, body can feel sort of alive with that confidence and that gratitude. Sometimes it can even feel a little overwhelming and not useful, you know, like uh, not so easy to channel that faith energy back into the next moment of practice. Just connecting with the next arising, the next breath coming in or the next predominant experience. And uh, what can be disconcerting for us sometimes, of course, is just how, like even in the course of one day, certainly in the course of a week, that we can inhabit that full range from strong faith you know, in those moments where the faith is strong, it's like, no, this is, this is what this life is about. And there's just, there's no wavering. It, it feels deeply rooted. And in a sense, in those moments, it really is. And then it's not so much the faith goes away, it gets obscured. And we can be in one of those little vortexes where Whatever the doubt is that the mind is constructing, it's as real as anything. I'm really, I really don't get this. I really don't think I should be here. I really don't think these teachers know what they're talking about. <laughs> or even the Buddha doesn't know what, you know, what they were talking about back then. Or, the, you know, a place like the Forest Refuge, it's confused. You know, whatever, whoever, whatever they were thinking this is a debt. <laughs> you know, it's so disconnected from real life. How could this be helpful? What was I thinking? I'm assuming some of you are laughing because it's familiar. And uh, one of the nice things, you know, when we're here for a longer period of time, like some of you are, is that that movement along that spectrum from authentic, I'm not, this is, I'm not talking about, you know, where we've whipped up we want faith, so we sort of have whipped it up with some of our thinking. But no, a real deeply resonant faith and confidence in the teachings and the practice and even in our capacity to do the practice. Like, I don't know when or how, but I have confidence that if I stick with this, good results will come. It's just a matter of I think Bhikkhu Bodhi said this, you know, it's just a matter of beginning and continuing, right? That's all it's a matter of. And then the the other end, where we just have very, in the moment, compelling evidence that something is deeply off or broken or wrong. And we can have so much movement that uh, we just get more skilled through a lot of trial and error, we just get more skilled at dealing with the strong faith energy, 
how to make that energy useful, how to channel it so it doesn't lead to just proliferation. Like when we're not skillful with that strong faith energy, I'm sure some of you have noticed that it's like we're already solving problems. Like, well, if I do become a fully enlightened one, <laughs> would I keep my job? <laughs> you know, or, you know, or planning our next retreats, or I guess I don't need any more retreats, or whatever. It, it could, because when there's a lot of joy, a lot of energy, you know, that wholesome energy in the mind, if it's not recognized as something being known, then the kind of ordinary patterns of the mind is going to, they're going to feel compelled to do something with that energy. Plan, imagine, become, right? That's just very lawful. We can just expect that that's going to happen when there's a lot of that wholesome energy arising. So the, as always, the practice is not to be confused by whatever it is that's arising, whether it's wholesome faith energy or, you know, very compelling images of doubt or pictures of doubt, stories of doubt. One of my teachers, Saida Uteshaniya, talks about this because, you know, there are, you know, whether we call it doubt or we give it another name, there are these wholesome expressions of doubt, of keeping an open mind, staying interested, not imagining we've seen or know everything there is to see and know, you know, because that curiosity it's so important. And if we're, you know, if we think we know, it can really cut off. It can really get in the way of practice. So Sayadotejaniya, this Burmese monk, he says, if doubt is unskillful, it causes confusion and agitation. It makes you feel less and less comfortable. Because the mind begins to spin in a way that disconnects the mind from practice. And the more disconnected we are from practice, you see it's a feedback loop, the doubt becomes more compelling because we sense, I really don't know what's going on, which is true because we're thinking, identified with our thoughts, and therefore not really connecting with reality, with the nature of the present moment. And so in a, in a funny, ironic way, some of those thoughts we have when we're in one of those strong vortexes of doubt, it's really true. It's like this mind isn't for my own good or anybody's good. It's not helping anybody. It's lost. And so we don't, <laughs> this is the trouble is that, you know, that doubt can masquerade, masquerade as wisdom because there is some wisdom to it. But uh, what's not wise is the strong sense of needing to keep thinking about it as opposed to the one thing that actually always 
weekend stout, which is just connecting to the present moment in whatever way is available in the moment. I forget who it was, but one of my teachers would, you know, when giving a talk on doubt, it might have been Joseph Goldstein, but anyway, they would just say, you know, like feel your hand touching your thigh or some ordinary present moment experience and simply receive and know that experience, that simple experience of contact and pressure, warmth, whatever the characteristics of that simple experience of touch or any experience being known. And when we're deeply present with that and we check, well, notice there's no doubt in the mind. Any moment of being connected with the activity of the body, the activity of the mind through the six sense gates, I mean, imagine if we had the wherewithal all our life, but, you know, even just now on retreat, that whenever doubt were to arise for us, which I'm assuming, you know, is not that uncommon, different expressions of doubt, if we just had the wherewithal not to feel obliged to answer the questions that the doubt is asking, and demanding, you know, you should know this, you should have evidence for that. You should have direct, irrefutable evidence that this is where you are along the spiritual path. Because I fear I haven't gotten out of the door, you know, or something like that. And so it seems like to address that fear, that concern, I need to know where I'm at in some sort of linear way. And it feels like that question, like, have I made any progress? Do I know what I'm doing? Like that it needs some kind of actual answer. And what's, and it might, but often when we just go back to the practice and we just connect, let's say with the breath, if we're working, if that's one of the objects we train with, you know, practice connecting and sustaining, feeling of the whole body, the experience of the whole body, the experience of breathing in, breathing out, the attitude of loving kindness, you know, whatever it is or whatever might be predominant in the moment. If we just connect, and sustain, and then are also interested, oh, the doubt that was there isn't there. It's so important to recognize that the kind of uncertainty, the kind of questions that remain unanswered suddenly aren't an issue when previously they were definitely an issue. I mean, it isn't the only way to resolve doubt. You know, sometimes we just see the arising of doubt as that 
thought, that feeling tone being known. There's something about this uh, self-importance around doubt that can come up where there's a presumption that almost like it's a monster showing up in our practice, you know, this big worry or question or obstacle. And that somehow that monster has to be run from or denied or killed or But in a way that it presumes that the doubt is more than it is, like that the doubt is an expression of wisdom. And the the important thing to remember is we don't know that that's true. It may be just arising because of causes and conditions. You know, that's the habit of the mind to be full of doubt. And maybe there's a particular trigger. I remember a time during one of the three-month retreats at the retreat center just over the hill. And uh, this is a long time ago. And I was doing some walking practice, probably in the middle of the retreat. So I was pretty settled and had some continuity of awareness. And I remember, I don't know if people practiced at the retreat center, but there's that sort of driveway that skirts the... What would it be? Maybe the west, no, maybe the south side of the building. And um, I was just walking back and forth. And I, I forget exactly what happened, but something triggered a very familiar heavy coat, heavy weight of doubt, you know, which is, uh, in terms of my personality, that was a, that was a, pretty common tendency to fall into doubt. And, uh, but because of the continuity of awareness, when the doubt came online, there was a lot of clarity seeing it, seeing the balanced, non-afflicted mind, and then seeing the doubt come in fresh, as if, you know, just from nowhere. It was so clearly impersonal And ephemeral, normally we think of something being ephemeral when we observe it going away, but we also see the ephemeral nature when something just shows up. Oh. And then it it just was so, like in a way it, it fits so well in the mind because it was so familiar. And just seeing that from this place of balance and that continuity of awareness, just seeing doubt as this state of mind that arose because of causes and conditions fits so nicely in the mind, change, you know, how it colors everything. But what was missing was the identification, right? What what was there instead was just interest and balanced awareness, seeing it as a phenomena that arose And it really changed, like when we can observe these afflictive states, whatever it is for us, you know, doubt may not be one of your 
primary obstacles that shows up, defilements, but it's probably there at least, you know, as one of the secondary, maybe not the top one or top two, but, you know, something that shows up from time to time. And it might, you know, often doubt comes with things like restlessness or fear, aversion, greed too, even doubt and greed can go together. Doubt and sleepiness can go together, doubt and restlessness, right? So that sometimes we may not acknowledge the doubt part, but we'll sense the restlessness or we'll sense the fear, anxiety, aversion. So that's the unskillful doubt. Sayadaw Tejaniya says, it makes you feel less and less comfortable because we disconnect. And he goes on, he says, skillful doubt makes the mind curious. It puts the mind into an investigative mood. And this is, uh, like I said, we might, it might be good for our own use to have different words between unskillful doubt and that skillful curiosity and openness and lack of having a fixed mind, a fixed conclusion about the way it is so that the mind remains in this receptive and open, sensitive place. And one of the, you know, if we, whenever, I forget where this came from, but whenever we pluck certainty, whenever our mind gets dependent on certainty, then in a sense we create the conditions for doubt. So if we have times in the retreat where the faith energy that we're feeling, the habit of the mind to grasp, to make it something that it isn't, Right? So we, we sense some, we directly sense some learning, like in paying attention, we're understanding the mind, and we're understanding in the mind that corresponds with some of the teachings of the Buddha. And a lot of faith energy arises, oh, whatever's happening to me seems to be corresponding with some of the Buddha's teachings. And there can be, like I mentioned, a lot of energy, a lot of gratitude. But the mind can take a, go a step too far and kind of sense, create the sense that somebody owns this learning, these insights, this understanding in a way that has that element of certainty. So then you see what a setup it is because if in another moment that clarity isn't there, then doubt can come in like, maybe I can't trust my experience because my experience said I had this and now my experience is demonstrating I don't have it. You know, I have calm. You know how it is when we have a sit where there's a lot of tranquility. One of the elements that can arise in a really so-called good sit is like, like the, the tranquility can be so pervasive and so natural 
the mind can wrongly conclude, I got this. You know, I own this. I know how to get here. This is here for me. And then other times, it may not be available for any number of reasons. And if we misunderstood the experience of tranquility and thought that it was really owned in some fixed way, then we have plucked doubt, right? We've created the conditions for doubt. It can be a nice uh, meditation habit, you know, when we, uh, wholesome states, pleasant states, deepening states of concentration and insights, when all these natural fruits of practice show up to just recognize that they're lawful, they arise due to causes and conditions, when those supporting conditions aren't there, they'll pass. Does it mean that those experiences of deeper tranquility or deeper insights, doesn't mean that they don't leave an impression on the mind? Clearly they do, right? We're changed by those experiences, but they come and go. And mistakenly trying to create solid ground, you know, that's, That's how we set up doubt and confusion. So in that way, you know, we chanted the refuge earlier, refuges earlier tonight, and we can think of the refuges as something that one has. But it's really what we have is this learning about how to relate. Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, it's really about learning how to relate to the present moment, learning how to show up. That's what's really a refuge or trustworthy. It's not something I have, but it's a way of relating that I'm learning that I find to be a real refuge, a really trustworthy way of being. And you see, it's unconditioned in the sense that I can use that way of relating, like Buddha relating with awareness. Dhamma, you know, welcoming, being receptive to Dhamma the way it is right now, using that value of being awake, receptive, open with the way it is. That's what Dhamma means. So Buddha being intimate with Dhamma, that, those are ways of relating that are appropriate any time. And Sangha is like letting our activity, the choices we make, what we do, that enlightened activity, that skillful responding, letting it naturally arise out of Buddha being intimate with Dhamma, being present with Dhamma. See, that's that way of understanding refuge, what's our refuge, what do we trust, 
what do we turn to when we're afflicted by doubt, for example? We don't turn to something that's fixed because doubt is there if it's fixed. But we, we turn to a, a process, a way of relating. And that's how we, it's one of the ways we find a way out of those places where there's a lot of doubt. That's what I meant by, you know, feeling the hand touching the thigh, that little reflection we did earlier. That's just Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, right? Being awake, being intimate with the experience of touch, Dhamma. And uh, Sangha, the participation, is just like allowing that to be, allowing the understanding and the confidence to arise without being confused, without claiming it in any way. It's, it's a little bit the difference between like uh, knowing that we have to eat and wanting to be safe. We go about storing food and not knowing how long we're going to be alive. We've got to store food like maybe I'll live to be 105, right? You see how neurotic that would be. But another way of dealing with that problem of having a body that needs food is knowing how to grow food knowing how to find food, knowing how to barter for food, like having a bunch of skills that could be useful in different situations to take care of the body. And Dharma, the teachings and the practices and the confidence, the faith that can arise for us is having lived, you know, as a human being, having studied and practiced, there's greater and greater confidence that whatever arises for me, there are Dharma tools that are there to be used. I can find my way. And one of my, uh, I'll, I'll probably post this sutta on the bulletin board in case people want to take a look at it, but There are three similes I like to use a lot when I'm teaching. Uh, Some of you probably have heard this uh, sutta where the Buddha gives three similes, the simile of a hen, a mother hen. And uh, I'll just read this. Because it kind of points out like how faith can arise and how you can, as you're hearing these three similes, you can think about it both in terms of the context for faith to arise, but also in its absence of this understanding, how there would be doubt there. So the first example, the first simile the Buddha uses is a mother hen. And the sutta goes, suppose a hen has eight, 10, or 12 eggs, and she doesn't cover them rightly, doesn't warm them rightly, or incubate them rightly, then even though this wish may occur to her, oh, that my chicks might break through the eggshells with their spiked claws or beaks and hatch out safely, 
Still, it is not possible that the chicks will break through the eggshells with their spike claws or beaks and hatch out safely. Why is that? Because the hen has not covered them rightly, warmed them rightly, or incubated them rightly. In the same way, even though this wish may occur to a practitioner who dwells without devoting themselves to development, oh, that this mind might be released from the effluence through the lack of clinging. Effluence, that's uh, a translation. This must be uh, Tanasaro Bhikkhu. He translated asawas. Some of you know that Pali word. Sometimes they get translated as fermentations or outflows. Sensuality is one of the effluence. Uh, fixed views, becoming, wanting to become, and ignorance. And sometimes fixed views is included in that list. And sometimes fixed views is just under ignorance. And it's just the three. Attachment to sense experience, becoming, and ignorance. And sometimes fixed view or self-view is added. Um, and these are the outflows, right? We, we notice these a lot on retreat, right? How many times a day did we notice becoming energy? Wanting to become the person, you know, who's gone beyond knee pain <laughs> or whatever it is. Or, you know, just various fixed views, self-views that got established in the mind or feeling an unnatural dependence on some sense experience, you know, whatever it might be, lunch. <laughs> so we put, he uses this now. So even if, you know, we have that strong wish, may my mind be free from these effluents, these outflows of sense desires. I want to be free from sense desire and free from constantly wanting to become somebody, become enlightened, right? That's a common becoming. Becoming someone with deeper insight, with unshakable faith. I mean, we have those thoughts. This is not uncommon, right? Still, having the desire for you know, deepening or insight That's not the cause for it. So the Buddha here says, still one's mind is not released from the effluence through lack of clinging. Why is that? From lack of developing, it should be said. Lack of developing what? And then he goes on, he just talks about the different instructions or the different maps, you know, the four foundations of mindfulness, the four right exertions, the four basis of powers, the five faculties, the five strengths, the seven factors of awakening, the noble eightfold path, right? So he just lists all the ways that we develop our practice. So you understand that the the point of this simile of the hen is that eggs don't hatch because the mother hen has a sincere desire for the eggs to hatch. They hatch when the mother hen keeps them warm, keeps them incubated, all the supporting conditions for the hatching are there, then some of the chicks are gonna hatch for sure. Same thing with our practice. It will naturally mature if we practice. If we spend our time wanting our practice to mature, we'll instead 
be frustrated, won't we? Thinking about practice isn't the same as practice. So that's the first simile. And I think it teaches us a lot about um, faith and doubt. You know, like we can use that image of the mother hen and when doubt is there, because we can be fooled by the sincerity of our desire to be a good practitioner. This is a little bit what I was saying before when that bright faith energy is strong. We have to find a way to channel that into the next moment of connecting with our experience. And how to do that in just the right way so it's not, there's not the striving energy in it, but at the same time we're really wholehearted and sincere in that reconnecting with the present moment. That's a very particular skill to acquire, like how to have the faith energy, but keep channeling right back into the practice in a fresh way, not kind of on autopilot. Right? That's the wholehearted part of it. So then now the second simile is, uh, well, maybe I'll just read it again. Just as when a carpenter or a carpenter's apprentice sees the marks of their fingers or thumb on the handle of their axe, but does not know today my axe handle wore down this much, or yesterday it wore down that much, or the day before yesterday it wore down this much, still they know it is worn down, worn down through when it has worn through. In the same way, when a practitioner dwells devoting oneself to development, they do not know, today my effluence wore down this much, yesterday they wore down that much, the day before yesterday they wore down that much. Still they know they are worn through when they are worn through. And this is, you know, that thing we do sometimes, that habit to want to evaluate you know, how am I doing? Where am I? Am I making some progress? Because there is, you know, I think the Dalai Lama, there's a famous quote from the Dalai Lama where some journalist asked something about like, can you, do you notice the effect from your practice? You know, when you sit in the morning and do you notice the effect? He says, well, no, but if I look back five or 10 years, I can really see the nature, the habits of this mind are not like that mind back there. Something has changed. The tendencies, the capacity, the resilience, the stability that's here now is not like it was back then. Right? And that can be a real cause for appropriate faith, like, oh, something is happening. But if we're checking, remember Joseph, I don't know if he still does, but back uh, in the 90s, he would use that example of when he was an elementary student and planted carrot seeds, you know, and then he would dig in the soil to see if they're starting to sprout. 
doesn't really help <laughs> with the sprouting process to be digging around with those fragile sprouts to wonder if they're sprouting. And uh, so this is just another place to reflect on how faith and doubt can be present in our mind. Like that incessant checking, demanding some evidence can be a sign for us, oh, I wonder if there's some doubt here. What am I missing? Some underlying anxiety, some underlying fear and doubt that maybe would be useful to acknowledge. Oh, honey, you wanna, you wanna know with certainty whether you have value as a Buddhist meditator. <laughs> You know, that's why in meditative circles, we're always interested if uh, any of these biofeedback things actually are useful, right? It's like definitive proof that my mind is settling down. I'm this close, much closer to Nibbana than I was, you know. Oh no, I'm going away. And it... In a way, it, we, that, that sort of, uh, it, it's only that strong sense, that fixed sense of self that demands that the path be linear and spelled out with. And we're endlessly frustrated because that, that way of understanding is, it involves the sense of somebody acquiring the insights, somebody acquiring the deepening, or somebody getting somewhere. And it's, it's that whole conception is, a, is off from the beginning. Right? It's really more of a shedding. And that brings us to the third simile in the sutta, in this discourse, which is of, it's really about something rotting away. So it goes like this, just as when an ocean going ship rigged with masts and stays after six months on the water is left on shore for the winter, it stays weathered by the heat and wind, moistened by the clouds of the rainy season, (coughs) easily withers and rots away. In the same way, when a practitioner dwells devoting themselves to development, one's fetters easily wither and rot away. I often think about, you know, especially a place like the Forest Refuge that has such a strong uh, Dharma vibe, just this kind of cool, quiet, empty flavor, just the cumulative vibe of all the practitioners, even though it's only been around for about 20 years now. Um, It's really palatable for me at least, maybe for some of you too. And it's, I, I sometimes think of this as like our job as a practitioner is just to keep 
doing our best to stay close to the teachings, to the practices, to our wholesome intentions to be in the practice, the wholesome community of other fellow practitioners. Just like, can we stay in the soup? And then, you know, acknowledging all the clever neurotic ways, even in the context of being on retreat at the forest refuge, we're a million miles away from the Dharma, you know, because that's what happens when we're in one of those vortexes of doubt. And when we're a million miles away, you know, in one of our bubbles of not being good enough, or it could be just the opposite kind of bubble, feeling like I really got something. But in any case, in those bubbles of doubt or identification, we've just stopped practicing. So eventually, when the practice kicks back in, there will be a yucky feeling of what it feels like to be disconnected. That will be the first moment of mindfulness when it returns. Oh, honey, this is what it feels like to have not been practicing, lost in thought, identified. You know how that is. I mean, one of the side effects of being on retreat is that the mind, the energy just begins to build. So when the mind slips off into one of its little vortexes of distraction, it does so with an amazing production studio, right? So the way we worry, the way we plan, the way we compare, the way we judge, the way we fantasize, the way we imagine, it's just as done in an amplified way because of the energies that have been building, being on retreat. And so in very little time, you know, even 10 minutes, five minutes, two minutes of being lost in thought and then mindfulness, because of its momentum, arises, recognizes, it's like this now, this experience of the mind and body is being known. It's like, sensing the devastation, (laughs) you know, that what has gotten wound up, what's gotten laid down in the sensitive heart, body, mind, because the present moment will be reverberating karmic, the karmic fruits of whatever the mind was up to in the previous moments. The content of that distractedness might have just popped, it's just gone, not in the mind at all. You might not even remember what you were lost in, that's okay. But the energetic, right, the bodily disturbance can reverberate for a while, the tension. And it can feel like, I don't want to be here, I'd rather be distracted. But it's the right thing to do, it's sort of not being afraid, not taking any of those off-ramps of wanting to doubt ourselves. Maybe I don't know what I'm doing. Why did I just do that? What was I thinking? 
That's why in, in practice, it's, we often emphasize the importance of forgiveness and patience and compassion. And, you know, most importantly, that, that really sublime sense of humor as we observe these patterns. And, and that coming out of all of that is that uh, really beautiful gratitude. I'm so happy to see, to be aware again, even if it's unpleasant, you know, like it sometimes is after having been distracted. So good to return. So even though there may be some unpleasant reverberations, tension from having been lost in thought, it still feels good to be present. Right? And to sense that that strangely, I mean, this is really the mystery and the power of the awakening process. Strangely, paradoxically, it's somehow not a problem to have been distracted. Like having been distracted somehow didn't stain, doesn't remove this possibility of freedom now. Because right in any moment of being present is that sense like being open to what it feels like to have been distracted Right? It's a little of that taste of freedom, like, like when we open to that without taking the off-ramp of hating ourselves or judging ourselves or thinking other people are further along than me or you know, whatever, I should probably just leave. I should have started when I was in my early 20s. If only my parents were fully enlightened. <laughs> instead of, you know, people like the rest of us. But there's some profound freedom in that willingness to simply begin again, like this moment of feeling what it feels like to have been distracted. It is such a demonstration of wisdom, love, freedom, to just be willing to be intimate. Oh yeah, it's like this now. It feels like this now. This is what's moving. Can this be okay? Yeah, I think I think this can be okay. That's real. You know, the faith, the confidence that arises out of that, it's kind of if we were to put it into words, it's it's something like, oh, maybe everything's workable. Even this conditioned mind with these neurotic patterns, even this conditioned mind with these neurotic patterns can't stain, corrupt the possibility of freedom. It really builds the energy, you know, that, uh, yeah. And this is, I think, really supports more of that sense of humor with all of these different ways that, uh, you know, we'll forget and get lost.
There's a, a book that came out probably maybe almost 20 years ago. I enjoyed reading, I remember, just because it had a lot of humor. It was just a, a Zen student sort of writing about his practice. And he was a student of Kudo Roshi, who's a, I don't know if he's still alive, a pretty well-known uh, Japanese Zen teacher. I think he taught a little bit in the States and the East Coast and also in Australia. And uh, he was ta- having a conversation with his student, or his teacher rather, um, just about some confusion and about some big choice. I forget if it was like about a relationship or something big in his life. And this is his uh, teacher's response to the, the doubt and the confusion. Can't decide? Oh, great decision, Larry's son. That's what he called him, Larry's son. My teachers say, if you confused, do confused. Don't be confused by confusion. Understand? Be totally confused, Larry's son. Then I guarantee no problem at all. And that's that, that moment where we go from being lost in doubt to realizing it's just doubt. And that there's a real flavor, even though it might be unpleasant because of what tension is still reverberating from having been lost in doubt, there's so much freedom in not having to run or resolve the doubt or the confusion. Just like not having to answer questions the mind asks. Some of you probably raised kids. I didn't raise kids, but I did. I was an elementary school teacher for a while, including really young kids, preschool, second and third grade for a while. And um, it's a long time ago. But yeah, you don't always have to answer the questions. You like just... Sometimes the not knowing is the appropriate way of relating to questions, knowing that we don't know. And that comfort with ambiguity. Because often in earlier years in our practice, we just necessarily use kind of a linear idea of progress. You know, I'm here, and then I do a few retreats, and I'm there, and then... Then I'm here, and someday I'll be at the top of that mountain. And uh, but I think at some point along the way, we realize that that there is some kind of purification of our personality, some of those tendencies that are not so skillful, get weakened, and maybe even fall away. We don't see them anymore. Other wholesome qualities become more predominant in our personality. And and it seems like, yeah, there's this uh, purification of oneself, of one's personality, of the qualities in one's mind. But there's a sort of parallel, and I would call it deeper or more uh, related to the depth of the Dharma that happens alongside that more linear you know, purification of our personality, I'll call it. And that's the understanding that freedom doesn't depend on having a perfect personality or freedom doesn't depend on anything. 
And that, that's what begins to creep in when we work with doubt because we will wrongly think that I have to get rid of doubt and I have to get rid of lust and I have to get rid of ill will and I have to get rid of dullness and sleepiness and restlessness. And there's some truth like to the, to the point that we have to develop skill in how we relate to these habits of mind, these tendencies of the mind. That's for sure. But even, you know, being a half-baked meditator or however you might assess <laughs> your place along that spectrum, you know, we don't want to ever imagine that somehow freedom isn't available because it makes the mind uncurious. You know, we think, well, I can't experience freedom now. I'm still half-baked. You know, and that's such a, it really changes our whole idea of the practice because, you know, generally because of our cultural conditioning, we're just going to want to think about things in terms of perfection, becoming a perfect Buddhist, a perfect meditator. And, you know, there's a lot in the tradition that can make it seem like to be really good at this, you need to be some kind of Buddhist superhero who can sit for hours, you know, doesn't have any of this or any of that, immune to the eight worldly winds of gain and loss, pain and pleasure, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, as opposed to becoming someone having a mind, a heart that isn't confused by all the different movements that happen to human beings, outer experience and inner experience. No confusion. Oh yeah, this happens sometimes. So let's leave it here. Invite in the next days, hours, just that curiosity about the arising of doubt, the arising of faith, letting go of the words, and we'll end the evening by chanting on the backside, the reflections on sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.